Hello, my name is John Lovering and I am the host of Audio Theatre heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Our first storyteller is Lynn Nickerson. Um, My true tale tonight is entitled Me and Mr. Bond, and it's an accounting of my first, thus far, and only confirmation of reincarnation. For many of you, the elements of what I'm about to relate may not be evidence enough for you to come to the same conclusion that I have, but I'll leave it up to you to decide. My true tale begins in the fall of 1973 when I met Sam. He and I were both attending a class in a big lecture hall at UNH, and we seemed to be sitting in close proximity to each other all the time, and then until finally one day, someone broke the ice and we decided we started talking. After that, we became very fast friends. In addition to having many mutual interests, we also had a psychic connection. We'd often play mind games and we'd send images to each other, and we had actually a pretty high rate of accuracy. And then sometime in November of 1973, Sam began a series of dreams that lasted for three nights in a row. The dreams not only attest to Sam's psychic ability, but also to the possibility of past lifetimes, as you'll soon see. Oddly enough, Sam and I never really discussed reincarnation. It usually, the subject matter was usually on ESP and ghosts, and that was a pretty hot, hot topic back in 1973, long before all of the paranormal investigation stories became popular. So, Sam's epic dreams seemed to come out of nowhere, and he actually found it quite frightening. He mentioned to me that he hesitated going to sleep in, in fear of the dream continuing. And at the time, he was unwilling to explain to me why he found the dream so frightening, and just said that part of his fear stemmed from the fact that I was in it. And I thought, well, <laughs> I'm not that scary, am I? But he wouldn't elaborate, so I dropped the issue. So at this period in my life, I wasn't really sure if I believed in reincarnation, but I gradually came to accept it as a possibility only because I had such a a strong tie to England and I began to think that maybe I had been a monk in a former life and I'm quite sure that I lived in the British Isles at some point in a past lifetime because I have such a strong draw to England. Well, a few days after the last dream, Sam decided that he was going to share the details of the dream with me. He still had questions surrounding the significance of it, but what he understood of what he dreamt, he related it to me. The setting of the dream was in England, and he felt that it was at, um, he felt that he was an archaeologist and he was digging for something. It was always nighttime, and an underlying pervasive darkness underneath that was a set of mysterious circumstances. He felt that he was spending time on the grounds of a monastery. So, Glastonbury Abbey, he felt that it was Glastonbury Abbey, and that the activity that he was participating in was a seance. Now, there were others who were present who seemed to be calling him by the name of Bly or Blight, but he couldn't quite make out the name. It didn't make any sense to him. So I questioned him again as to what he found so disturbing about the dream. And he explained to me that because it was so real, it creeped him out. He felt it was very haunting. And the other disturbing factor was me. He said I appeared as a ghost of a medieval monk who was holding a candle to light the way for whatever it was he was doing. Shortly after this episode, Sam had to make a trip to Montreal, Canada. And while he was there, he took some time out, and he went to the library at McGill University. He thought he was going to sit down and do some research. So he went armed with three bits of information, all of which were keys to unlocking the mystery of this dream. Number one, he heard someone calling him by the name of Blight or Bly. Number two, he thought that the setting of the dream was Glastonbury Abbey. And number three, there was a dead monk who kept appearing to him with a candle. 
So Sam's trip to McGill University did uncover some astonishing facts. For instance, in 1908, the Church of England made the decision that they would start excavating portions of Glastonbury Abbey. And part of the tasks to do this included looking for the, the remains of the foundation of a little chapel called the Edgar Chapel. Well, there were no records available, so they had nothing to go by. So, as an architect and an archaeologist and a psychical researcher, the Church of England decided to appoint a man by the name of Mr. Bly Bond, and he was to be the director of excavations. Now, Mr. Bond was an acknowledged authority on the history of church architecture, and he was also a member of the Society for Psychical Research in England. And this is where he met a Captain John Bartlett. And it was Mr. Bartlett who introduced Mr. Bond to the idea of automatic writing. And it was automatic writing that became one of the methods that they used to obtain historical information concerning the foundations of the Edgar Chapel. The other method that they used was holding a seance. So from these sessions, Mr. Bond received communication from a group of disincarnate monks that called themselves the Watchers. And one of the primary communicants of the Watchers was a man who called himself Johannes Bryant. Now, Brother Bryant claimed to be the builder of the Edgar Chapel, and it was he who advised Mr. Bond where to dig to find the foundations at Clastonbury Abbey. Although Mr. Bond's work is still highly regarded by those studying psychical research, he passed away in relative obscurity. His work and his methods, which he left behind in 1945, went pretty much unnoticed. In conclusion, based on the facts uncovered from the research, I would have to say that Sam's dream was based in reality. A Mr. Frederick Bly Bond, who was referred to as Bly, really did exist, and Sam and I were both connected to him. This does make me wonder, was Sam the reincarnation of Bly Bond? And maybe was I the reincarnation of Johannes Bryan? I don't know. But I do know that the evidence may not be conclusive, but it does seem to support these possibilities. And I'll leave you with um, two final nuggets of information. Uh, Sam started to have these dreams in November, which was the same month that Bly Bond became his psychical research. And Mr. Bond's astrological sign was cancer, and he died in 1945. And my friend Sam, he was a cancer as well, and he was born two years later in 1947. It does make you wonder, and what do you think? <laughs> Thank you. Our next uh, storyteller is Lucas Perry. Thank you very much. So my story is called Lengths to Procure Incense. It starts out with me and my friends going to the mall in Manchester. And at that time, I stole a lot. I was basically going around the mall stealing things, little things, you know, things that really didn't matter too much just to have the thrill of stealing because I was young and stupid. So I take a pack of incense off the wall in a store called Spencer's and I go and I walk out with it in my hand, fully exposed. I walk into the next store and I'm talking to my friends and looking at clothes or whatever. And uh, the manager comes and he asks me, hey, can you show me where you put that incense? And I, uh, we go to walk back in the store. I'm like, yeah, sure, uh, I can show you. And then I just uh, gave in and I said, you know, look, here, the incense in my uh, pants. You can just have it. No big deal. I was surprised because I thought he would just let me off the hook. But instead, he said, no, we're just going to have you come in and, you know, we can talk to the security guards or something like that. I responded, no, I think I'm all right. I think I'm just going to go. And so I turned around to maybe walk away, and there was a security guard right in my face looking at me. He says, hey, uh, what's what's going on? And, and I, uh, I just responded, no, nothing, you know, no, there's no big deal. And uh, we basically have this banter back and forth where he's trying to get me into the store for questioning. And I kept responding, well, no, you actually have no authority over me because you're a security guard. And I, I can just walk right now. And But anyway, I, I decided to go along with his goals because I felt like I could get off because it was just a pack of incense. So they get me in the store and they ask my name and I tell them all fake information. Tell them my name is John Preston. My name's Lucas. It's not John Preston. I tell them I live in a town. I just make up a random town. I said Deerfield, I think. And then I just made up a road name. I was like 20 Doe Lane. 
and then made up a fake phone number and I thought I was going to get off the hook. And then the manager says to the security guard, hey, uh, I think we should maybe call the cops in on this. And, and that's when I immediately freaked out and decided that I could either stay and get arrested for shoplifting or I could just run. So I look to my right and there's a security guard next to me and he's keeping a good eye on me that he was just questioning me. And then there's another security guard to my left about 10 feet away. And then there's two security guards posted up at each corner of the entrance of the store. So I decided I was going to run, but it was a pretty impossible feat because I had to get through all these security guards. So, and there was one aisle I could get through. So I was just waiting till these people were done shopping in this aisle and they're really taking their time and I was getting really anxious. And then finally I made a break for it and I ran and then I pushed the people out off to the side because I had to get through the aisle. And then I ran through the store and the two security guards that were in the entrance just both looked at me and they, they were like, oh, stop, stop. And uh, I just kept running and I ran through these two girls and their shopping bags all their contents flew up in the air and they screamed like, Oh my God. And the security guards are yelling. They're yelling, stop, stop, stop. I'm just booking at full speed. I book it into Macy's and then I, I look into this little side room and I figure there might be an elevator to get out of there. I go into the elevator room. There's this old lady that walks out of the elevator really, really slowly when I try to get into it. So I just say, forget that. I'm going to go for the emergency exit. And then right when I turn to the emergency exit, a random man with a white shirt just grabs me and pushes me against the wall. And he's just choking me at this point. We're struggling. And he says, oh, you're going to jail. Like, you really regret this, don't you? And I'm just, like, getting choked by my own shirt. And I'm, I'm asking him, like, who are you, man? Like, what's going on? And then, so anyway, we continue to struggle a little bit. And then he grabs my belt and we're, like, and we're, like, wrestling. And he's, like, still holding my, onto my belt. And then I bust his hands off of me. And then simultaneously, my shirt flies off and my hat. Then I'm shirtless, just staring at him. And he's looking at me like, what? And we just both looked freaked out like at each other. And then I just turn around, bust through the emergency exit door. I run through this warehouse, shirtless. I run across the parking lot. I run up this super steep hill that's maybe like that steep. And then I end up at a six lane um, mini highway. And basically, I have to run across this highway while the cars are going. So I'm dodging cars and I'm shirtless still, just running. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. I just keep running. And this is all over incense. So like, you know, come on, not worth it. Anyway, so I keep running and I I run maybe a half mile across this big other big plaza. And then I end up at at this car dealership. And I run into this guy working on a car and he looks at me and he's like, can I help you? And I'm just like, ah, man. I just need to get a phone, you know? And he's like, oh, okay. And then I just freaked out and I ran behind the uh, dealership and it was all this big caged in area where you could only get in through one entrance. So I kind of panicked and I had nowhere to go. So there was a little caged in area with two dumpsters and I ended up just jumping over the fence in, and I just jumped straight in this dumpster, no hesitation. <laughs> so I'm waiting in this dumpster and freaking out and texting my friends at this point, And they're getting questioned by the security guards. And they're getting held at the mall by the security guards. I'm just in this dumpster freaking out. And I'm sitting there for maybe a half an hour. And then I hear this car pull up. And it just pulls up really slowly and then stops. And then I hear a door open and it's radio chatter. And I'm just like, oh, no. I have to cough and I can't. So he's like, "Uh, uh," and I can't really breathe. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I hear this person who must be a cop because it's radio chatter. It was radio chatter of police voices in their car. It must be a cop. This person, uh, this cop is walking really slowly, just pacing around the fence where the two dumpsters are, but he doesn't open the gate. For some reason, he's just pacing, and I can't really breathe, and I'm just, like, waiting, and it's a waiting game, and it lasts maybe five or ten minutes, but it just seemed like eternity, you know? So finally, he just gives up and just drives off, and then I text my friends to come pick me up, and they pull up. I bust out of this dumpster all covered in what seems to be waste product of automobiles or something. It's like 
there's like grease covering my arms and I'm crying and I get in the car I'm just like go 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 get out of here man yeah and then I'm like coughing up things out of my lungs and it was it was a pretty scary experience but at the end of the day it was my new beginning of being not a thief and stealing petty things (laughs) for no reason so that was a good lesson for me so that's the story thank you And now it's time for our next storyteller, Mr. Nelson Linscott. Good evening. My uh, story is called Destiny. Let's go back to October 2012. Hurricane Sandy had just walloped New Jersey and the storm was churning up the coast of Maine. I also was going up the coast of Maine to move to Jonesport. Changes in my life were on the horizon, but not without considerable difficulty. Though the storm didn't affect me as I thought it might, the effects of my life's difficulties would follow me. The dark clouds of Sandy were like the storm clouds of my life. I had survived brain cancer through the efforts of a clinical trial of which I was the only survivor. That's a good thing, right? Well, I wasn't convinced. I felt guilty that I was the only survivor, and prior difficulties in life made me uncomfortable in Kittery. I had decided to move away from friends, family, and my hometown of Kittery due to high rent and bad memories. I had rented a farmhouse perched on a peninsula of land in the Atlantic Ocean in Jonesport, very cheaply. It was big, beautiful, and it had the nostalgic feel that I loved. Still good, right? Well, I just wasn't a happy camper. I had several reasons to want to move away. I had lost my job at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, where I was an engineer. I couldn't maintain my security clearance, essential for employment at the Navy Yard, due to the stigma of brain cancer, piles of hospital bills, and bills from a divorce. After 9-1-1, the rules allowed the removal of an employee for just about any infraction, a poor credit score, perception, or even odd behavior. I could hear the start work and the go-home whistle at the Navy Yard seven days a week. It was a constant reminder of my removal. Rent had just been increased, and I wanted to be further away from my ex-wife. The notion that a change of scenery would do me good was humming in my subconsciousness. I'd lost my job, my life, my confidence. I was basically a mess. Oh, one more item. I was also addicted to methadone, which was prescribed for a uh, degenerative disc disease and also the cancer. I'd been on it for years at a, a dosage that would kill a horse. I wasn't moving because of my addiction to methadone. I didn't recognize that I was addicted to methadone. Methadone was prescribed, so I couldn't be a drug addict. I checked for a doctor in Jonesport who would be my new supplier. I thought I had found one. So I was all set. I was on unemployment. I had my drugs, had my material things, had my books, and my best friend Baxter, a miniature Australian shepherd. What could possibly go wrong? Plenty. Packing for the move was draining. I had filled 144 boxes when I stopped counting. I had thousands of books. I rented a 26-foot moving truck. I filled it to the brim. I had taken three weeks to pack. Filling the truck had just about killed me. Though I had plenty of help loading the truck, unloading was another matter. A friend, Bill, was going to Jonesport with me. He was kind enough to help me and drive the truck as well. I was in no shape to drive. It was me and Bill unloading the truck after loading it in the morning, driving five hours and having to drop the truck off at the rental office, all on the same day. Then Bill was going to rent a car and drive back to Kittery. When we arrived at my new home, I was already spent. Bill decided to back the the truck into the driveway by pulling forward onto the shoulder of the road and cutting the overfilled (laughs) truck close to the door. Bill crept the truck to the shoulder and over the edge he went into the mud. The truck was buried in the muck, stretched across the road, blocking it. Being optimists and slightly crazy, we decided we could dig this truck out. This is a 26-foot truck loaded to the gills. Sure. In the meantime, a a crowd of locals had gathered who offered no help. With arms crossed and shaking their heads, they exclaimed, That truck isn't going anywhere. (laughs) Sick of the lack of help and listening to these locals, I barked, We'll just leave it here and make it a planter. They can build a road around it. 
This wasn't the way I wanted to start in a new neighborhood. We called the tow truck. For $200, we were pulled out of the thick, wet clay. Waiting for the tow, I was unloading the truck myself. My back was inflamed. I wasn't too happy, and four hours later, the truck was empty. Bill was gone, and I closed the door and collapsed with Baxter on a mattress. I woke to the cold reality that I had a mountain of boxes to unpack, no help, and my back was killing me. My energies went to making the place a home. It was colder in Jonesport than Kittery. I had ordered oil before I left Kittery for heat. I checked to make sure it had been delivered. The tank was on E. I called the oil company, and it had been delivered. I went back to the oil tank in the cellar to investigate. The plug on the top of the tank was laying on the floor, and the telltale signs of siphoning was drizzled down the tank and on the concrete. I lost $300 day one. The people were even colder. The kids from across the street scratched H-A-T-E, hate, and the dirt of my driveway as I watched from the kitchen window. Another local told me it was the kid's father who had siphoned my oil. I didn't have a car, so I walked to the store until I heard about the Washington County Ride Program. I made, I called and made arrangements for a ride to the grocery store. Ruth, the volunteer driver, was 83 years old. She looked at me very seriously when I slid gingerly into the passenger seat, and she said, I have one question for you. Are you a hippie? I said that I guess I was. She said, are you drunk? I said, I wasn't. She said, then you're no hippie. Ruth was the only friend I made in Jonesport. She confided to me that her husband and her only son had disappeared while lobstering in 1978. I guess they're gone, she drawled. I said in amazement, it's 2012, Ruth. Well, they could have taken off and gone to Massachusetts. (laughs) I didn't answer. I was almost out of pain medication. I called the doctor, whose receptionist said that I was all set for a prescription when I called from Kittery. We are not accepting new patients, she replied. I explained how I needed my meds, and her answer was, you should have thought of that before you moved here. A shiver went down my spine, and I asked why she had told me that I was all set when I called from Kittery. She replied she didn't realize methadone was a narcotic. Little did I know prescription drug abuse was a huge problem in central Maine. No doctor would prescribe methadone. Many doctors could not prescribe due to an ongoing investigation of illegalities in many of the clinics. The clinic I attempted to get an appointment with had informed all the other clinics and doctors that I was trying to get methadone. I was blacklisted. The information spread to the most of the already suspicious population of Jonesport. An elderly man that I met in the uh, post office asked me if I was a drug addict. My last resort would be the hospital in Machias. I had also run out of blood pressure medication, and my blood pressure was soaring. Machias was 18 miles north of Jonesport. I had chest pains. I called the ambulance. On arrival at the emergency ward, I handed the orderly my prescription bottles for methadone and atenolol, the blood pressure medication. When it was realized I was on methadone, everything changed. A doctor who had transferred to Machias from Dover, New Hampshire, and knew my doctor who had prescribed the methadone, strolled over to me and said, as he held the methadone bottle within two inches from my nose, you won't be getting this up here, mister. I was discharged without even having my vitals taken. I asked for a ride home. No ride was available. Finally, a worker who was going home to Jonesport volunteered to take me home at the end of her shift. It was a long ride home knowing that I had no medications, no doctor, and two friends, Ruth and my dog, Baxter. It was snowing when I arrived home. There was Baxter wagging his tail, or where his tail had been before it was docked. He had no idea that I felt like I was dying. I did my best to assure him that everything was normal. I was rattled. I was heading for acute withdrawal. Day by day, the withdrawal became worse. Weeks went by. Sweat, vomiting, diarrhea, nervous leg syndrome, pain, despair, and loneliness. It was the worst time of my life, and I've had some pretty bad times. I thought I was going to die. I actually wanted to die. I had been on methadone for seven years at a high dosage. I didn't have the strength to crawl into bed. I spent my time on the living room carpet or the bathroom floor. Meals consisted of peanut butter sandwiches. I couldn't muster the energy to cook. After two months... I regained enough strength to start to think. I needed to move back to Kittery. I set a date, February 8th. 
My landlord did not disagree. He was told that he had rented the place to a junkie. I rented a truck, and I started to repack. A friend rented me an apartment back in Kittery, and I hired help to pack the truck. February 8th was the snowstorm Nemo. I had moved to Jonesport during the Hurricane Sandy, and now I was driving south in the white blizzard of Nemo. I made it to Augusta and the uh, luxurious Motel 8. Two days later, I arrived in Kittery to my unseen apartment, and again I unpacked. In pain, without pain meds, and still in withdrawal, but I was home again. Pain is my constant companion, but through meditation and stretching, I can tolerate it. I am back with my friends, and I can smile. I moved to Jonesport for many reasons, though getting straight wasn't one of the goals. Little did I know that moving to Jonesport, I would be getting off methadone and regaining my life. Deep down, I knew I had to get off that scourge of a medication. Uh, Withdrawal lasted for one year, but sometimes by taking the road to avoid your destiny, you find it. We would like to welcome to the uh, microphone uh, Dee Hebert. Our next storyteller. So right now, (laughs) I'm feeling a little bit like Lucas, and I'm saying, the exit's over there, but there's all these people in the way. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Dee, um, and I think like most people in this room, I was actually born. Um, For me, you know, I think there might be some people who came from the Cabbage Patch, maybe others with the Stork. Some of you might be visitors from Tau Ceti. If you are, I apologize. But anyways, when I was born, my parents, I think, were looking for the good, all-American, meat-and-potatoes-eating, Catholic, baseball-playing boy. And I kind of disappointed them on a couple of accounts. Um, I'm not Catholic anymore. Uh, baseball, and I sort of had a falling out right at day one. I realized that you actually have to be able to hit the ball, and that was something that wasn't going to happen with me. My my dad loved sports. He was trying to be a golf pro once. When he was younger, he started out as a caddy out at Kachiko Country Club. And he worked with the pros there, and he was great. And he tried to teach me how to play golf one day. And what I learned when I was holding that club and trying to swing at that ball was that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle can work on a macro scale. When I tried to hit that ball, it could go that way, that way, that way, that way, or that way. Any direction, and it was a totally random chance. But anyway, you know, my my parents really wanted this kind of, you know, all-American son, and that just wasn't going to happen. I think part of it comes from, you know, we have this faith in physicians, and these are the guys who are trained, and they go to school so that they can tell you what's wrong with you and what you need to do to fix it. And my parents were also very, very Catholic. I actually have an aunt. If you've ever been out in Manchester, you might have seen the uh, Precious Blood Monastery. And that's an order of nuns that was started by my grandfather's aunt. So this whole Catholic thing is built into my family as well. And there's this real similarity between between doctors and priests, because the doctors tell you, here's what's wrong, here's what you do to fix it. And the priests tell you, okay, here's what's wrong, here's what you do to fix it, and if you don't fix it, you're going to hell. Um, I never really got very much acquainted with that hell part either. Uh, that that was kind of um, wrong. But one thing I did learn is that growing up in kind of a faithful family, you learn that whoever, whatever God is, God wants to send you signs. You might have a sign like, say, you're in grade school and you decide it's going to be a day that I'm going to skip school. I'm going to do something fun. So you're out with your friends and you're playing in the forest and you're running down the trail and there comes that root and you trip and you fall flat on your face. You get all bloody. It's a sign. Maybe I shouldn't have skipped school that day. (laughs) Or maybe you're working and you decide, you know, I'm going to play hooky. You know, maybe it's a good day to go shopping, good day to go fishing. You hook up with some friends, driving down the highway, pop, there goes a tire. So you pull over to the side to fix it. Cop comes up behind you and reminds you, hey, you didn't register your car. Could be a sign. So anyway, when my family, my first year of school was at Holy Rosary School in Rochester. Then my family moved to Dover. And when we did, we had two choices of schools. There was St. Mary's, 
and there was St. Charles. Well, Mary Charles. And, you know, you're trying to fit in. And my brother then, he was born about 13 months after me. He didn't want to go to a school named Mary, obviously. So we decided to go to St. Charles. But again, you know, this, this whole gender conflict thing was going on. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering if it was possibly a sign when on April 10th, 1968, God burnt St. Charles School down to the ground. <laughs> Could have been a sign. So anyway, um, you know, I, I spent my youth trying to fit in, but it just really wasn't working. There's probably not a lot of people who understand this whole thing of gender identity disorder, but I can give you kind of an explanation. Say one day or one night you go to bed and you're dreaming everything's cool. You wake up the next morning and you suddenly look at the mirror and you look at the clothes in your room and you say, this does not fit. That's pretty much what it's about. And it's about that every day. So when I was about 14 years old, I decided, okay, I'm going to tell my parents. You speak to priests and things when you're a Catholic kid and you just hear, oh, you're going to hell. So you figure, okay, well, parents have a vested interest in you existing for a few more years. So I decided to tell my parents. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. in their conservative Catholic way of doing things, the first response from my mom was a vomit attack. First response from my dad was, you're sick, you're going to the state hospital. So I decided to just say, okay, I'm going to lie again. And I said, oh, I'm just, I was just trying to get mom upset. And I decided one more time, okay, let's try and give this whole male thing a try. And I figured, what's the best way to do that? So, okay, my grandfather was in the army. My other grandfather was in the army. I had an uncle who was a Green Beret, another uncle who was a Marine. Let's try the military. So I went across the street because my neighbor was a recruiter for the Army National Guard, 3rd Battalion, 197th Field Artillery. I decided to talk to him and say, yeah, I'll, I'll consider joining the Army National Guard. And I think my parents may have spoken to him at one point because they had this whole entrance psychological exam. He goes, okay, so answer the questions as if you really wanted to be a boy. That was a sign. Anyway, did that, and what my job would have been in that particular unit would have been something FDC, um, Fire Direction Control. And basically what it means is wherever they're, whatever they're shooting at, you're going to be like going out front, climbing up a tree, looking at it, saying, oh, 20 yards to the left or something like that. And basically the enemy's looking for whoever is directing the fire, which means that the alternate job title is target. <laughs> and I decided that was not something that was really interesting to me. So I decided, okay, let's try another branch. So I went down to the recruiter's office in Dover. The first door I went in was the Marine Corps. I said, oh, we're going to make a man out of you. 30 seconds later, I was talking to the Air Force recruiter. Actually, the Air Force was really, really cool. I spent four years in the Air Force. My um, duty station was originally down at North Turo in Cape Cod. Really cool place. Another temporary duty station was in Bucks Harbor, Maine. And I think you might be familiar with Bucks Harbor. So right, kind of right across the bay from Jonesport. I spent my four years in the Air Force. It was really good. I left. I, mean, I, ha I was a non-commissioned officer at the time. I got the... Um, Air Force Commendation Medal. That was great. Um, but then they told me that my next duty station would be, this would have been in 1983 in Turkey. And Turkey was not a really great place for American military folk. So I left that. I decided to head back here to New Hampshire. Still was trying to get this whole thing right. Still trying to live my life for other people. I met a girl I, w I was a music minister at the time, too, and I met this girl who decided to join our music ministry, um, apparently to meet, I, I'm assuming it was to meet me because she didn't play an instrument and she was tone deaf. Um, <laughs> so the, the not typical qualifications for the music ministry. But anyways, we met and we got married and we had we had a couple of kids together. And, you know, things should have worked out really well. She's the kind of girl who um, was pretty much allergic to dresses. Two days before our first daughter was born, she was in karate class sparring. Um, so she's kind of the tough and rugged, but unfortunately, 
didn't work out because she really wanted to be married to a guy. It was kind of interesting, though, because at one point after we'd gotten our divorce, she got a new job. And I called one of our mutual friends. I said, hey, she just got a new job. Let me guess. She's a prison guard in there. Exactly. And she is. And she's loving that. But, you know, I, I after that, I think life took a real negative turn. I was pretty down, pretty suicidal. And I realized that, you know, something's got to change. And that was probably the third time that, I guess, I was born again. And that was when I decided that, you know, no matter what else is going on, I've got to live for me. And since then, you know, life is really good. I've got a radio show here. I've got a business starting up where I'm doing some kind of creative, inventive work. You know, when, when you're trying to live for somebody else, it's like you're living dead. When you decide to live for yourself and do what makes you whole, that's when you're born again. And that's it for me. Thanks. Our next storyteller is Kathy Wolf. Uh, there was a summer a few years back when I got fingernails and a truck. Both seemed like really good ideas at the time. It was uh, a new beginning, self-improvement, growing up. That's what I thought anyway. Actually, it started long before summer, in, in January. For as long as I can remember, my perennial New Year's resolution has been to stop biting my fingernails. One New Year's Eve, I quietly realized my natural fingernails would never be longer than they were wide, at least not until I was toothless, and I didn't want to wait for that. So I resolved to get nails that year, real or not. I tried fake nails once before. They were the, the paste-on kind from the drugstore, and they made me feel really sexy, and I wore them for a one-night stand with my husband. We were separated at the time, and it was an attempt at reconciliation. By morning, most of the nails were falling off, and one was missing. I recovered it from between his shoulder blades. <laughs> Neither the nails nor the night really counted. But this time would be different. I was older, and I was ready for more permanence. A young woman on my commuter van down to Boston had fingernails to die for, and she said she'd gotten them at Nail Heaven. Nail Heaven was in downtown Crossing in Boston, upstairs from a store that sold nothing but socks. And by summer, I had worked up my nerve to go one of my lunch hours. I opened Nail Heaven's door to see at least 20 Vietnamese women bent over the toes and fingers of their almost completely Caucasian clientele. I was hit by the smell of polish and polish remover, and it made me think of my grandmother in Kansas City when I was a kid, and she's sitting at her dining room table with her four sisters, and they were all giving each other manicures. It was part of a family ritual that also included angel flute cake, coffee, canasta, and lots of gossip. And I admired those fingernails of my grandmother and great aunts, but I never had any interest in seeing my own nails look like that. At least not then. One problem was that just looking at a nail file or an emery board made my teeth ache and produced a shiver up and down my spine. Also, I was a really hyper kid. And the idea of sitting quietly for a manicure and then for it to dry just sounded like torture. So I would slip out the door when my grandmother suggested she give me a manicure, even though my nails were the only thing about me that she found less than perfect. <laughs> Even thinking about a nail file still gives me an odd tingling in my teeth. Um, and that's what I felt when I entered nail heaven. But I swallowed it. I was introduced to what they call your nail technician. I swear, her name was Milai. But I didn't want to ask twice. Her English was not much better than my Vietnamese. So she used a lot of hand signals along with increasingly shrill Vietnamese to get me to do what she wanted. Working with tremendous speed, clearly they were paid by the finger, she soaked, prodded, and roughed up my nails, and then she glued on and trimmed a set of, a set of sturdy-looking plastic ones. Finally, she filed them. I looked away. Then she stopped, and she started motioning at my purse. It took me a while to figure out the pay-before-paint protocol, and even longer to realize the rationale was to avoid disturbing the nails before the polish set. After that was settled, I got two coats of tangerine sunset. 
I was forced to choose a color before sitting down. This was not easy. It took me a month of angst to choose a hue for my living room walls, and I'm not nearly as intimate with them as I am with my hands. So I used the pizza approach, the power of elimination. No anchovies, no salami, no pepperoni, no plums, blues, blacks, too goth. No reds, too bold, and no pinks, too feminine. That left orange. Tangerine Sunset, I decided, had... A mature coolness, but an aftertaste of fun. I left nail heaven feeling extremely feminine, flashing my new nails and thinking how happy my grandmother would be if she was still alive. I stopped to admire my reflection in a store window. Actually, I several store windows. And pushing some hair from my eye, one of my new nails gouged my face. <laughs> I was lucky it didn't hit my eye. I realized I had to get used to this new extension of my reality, of my boundaries, it was like walking in swim flippers across a beach. <laughs> Back at work, I faced another challenge, typing. I type fast, I type hard, and with nails, I type really inaccurately. However, I found that if I changed the angle of my fingers, I could type more accurately, but much more slowly. I didn't mind. Maybe I was still high on the nail heaven fumes. <laughs> The fellow I was hanging out with at the time barely noticed the nails. I wasn't surprised. He hadn't noticed that I had streaked my hair or that my chin fuzz was beginning to disappear with electrolysis or that I was actually narrowing the gap between my eyeliner and my eyelashes. The women out in this audience know what I'm talking about. Of course, he also had never noticed, or he was too kind to mention it, that I had a severe case of vanity that summer. Let's call him Joe. I hired Joe to fix my kitchen ceiling when it caved in during a windstorm, and he kept coming back to fix other things. He slowly had become, become kind of a, a fixture in my house and my life. And not long after acquiring my new nails, I mentioned to Joe that I had always wanted to own a truck. The car I was driving was dying, and a truck seemed like a reasonable replacement. Remember, I said at the beginning truck and fingernails. Just Joe began the search immediately. He noted how much easier it would be to make trips to Home Depot in the dump. And the fact his own car was worn out and increasingly unreliable may have fueled his enthusiasm. The truck we found was a two-tone brown, no-nonsense Ford 150 owned by a no-nonsense woman who rode a Harley, drove heavy construction vehicles for a living, and had such deep affection for her truck, she had named it Estelle. That happened to be Joe's mother's name. So he was especially pleased when I decided to buy it. I liked driving Estelle, picking up roadside treasures and hauling last year's treasures to the dump. I liked looking down on other cars. And I especially liked the way my nails sounded clicking on the steering wheel. I felt like it was a, a whole new beginning for me, maybe even a new me. I started thinking seriously about dyeing my hair red. <laughs> Joe would often use Estelle while I was at work. Sometimes he would take her home with him at night. I began to find more of his stuff on the front seat than mine. But I had other things to think about, mainly the nails. Within three weeks, they needed emergency repair. I'd started biting them, just a little, just to get the dirt, garden dirt out from underneath them. And then one chipped as I was throwing a broken chair off the back of Estelle at the dump. And I went to a nail shop in my own town. The Vietnamese proprietor scolded me and suggested there were some people who were just not really suitable candidates for nails. But I begged fervently, promising to be more careful, and he put on new ones. I chose Rusty Rose this time, a bit calmer than Tangerine Sunset. I also learned at that time with dismay that nails, like a garden, need regular attention. I would have to go to salons to have them filled and painted as the real na nails grew out. I had no concept of how fast nails can grow, since I'd always kept mine che chewed level with my fingers, or even below level if I was really nervous. More breakage in another week and another trip to another Vietnamese nail house. Luckily, there was no shortage, so I, because I was way too embarrassed to go back to the same ones. It was about eight weeks after I got my first set of fingernails, toward the end of the summer, that I had them removed for good. My poor, exposed real nails were pathetic, rough and cracked and weak. I couldn't even bite them. I gave Estelle to Joe in trade for renovating the kitchen. The truck fit him better than it did me anyway. I still resolve every New Year's to stop biting my nails, but now it's at the bottom of the list. More attainable goals, running a marathon or joining the space program are closer to the top. 
<laughs> I guess I realized that summer that sometimes the most valuable part of a new beginning is realizing you just don't need it. <laughs> Our next storyteller is uh, Sharon Rhodes. Sharon? Okay, I feel like I need to give you the name of my doctor because I'm really nervous. And just kidding. And um, my daughter Rochelle is my emergency contact. Nine one one. It's a direct line. And um, but and I want to thank John for providing the gray goose. I know it says Poland Spring, but it's helping. Um, after John sent me the FCC regulations, I had to take a look because it reminded me of. Those words you can't say on the radio seem to be the same words that George Carlin says you can't say on TV. So let me just let me look here. Oops. Not, mm, mm, mm. Oh. Um. oh shoot. Oh. Uh oh. Mm -mm. Mm. What the what? What is that? Okay. All right. I think I have salvaged something here. Oh boy. Okay. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. And that's T.S. Eliot. And this story is for Ralph, my Amistad and my free. A lone crow flew over our heads as we hunted for the urologist's office that morning, almost touching us. I remember thinking it was a bad omen because my maiden name means crow. Ralph's primary doctor of many years had sent him for a long overdue biopsy two weeks earlier. Mr. Rhodes, you have a very advanced aggressive form of cancer that has metastasized, the doctor said, in a voice that I'm sure he thought sounded compassionate. Ralph pitched forward and dropped his head into his hands. I had met the doctor 30 seconds earlier and had never seen Ralph unnerved ever, and I had seen him intervene in a violent stabbing, saving a life, with one arm in a sling, no less. Ralph was strong, healthy, working full-time for the post office, took no medications, and hadn't been hospitalized since he was born. He was 71. He was the salt of my earth, and his strong brown body, capped with a regal silver crown, lent proof. Seventeen years earlier, we had gone on a blind, but now I see, date, with the encouragement of my daughter, Erica. We fell in love, married, and he pardoned me from a self-imposed, or so I thought, life sentence of familial and societal abuse by simply handing me a key in the form of unconditional positive regard. I didn't know the term at the time, but it means if at least one significant person in your life makes you feel loved and respected for who you are, you can become all you can be. Sort of like the Army recruitment song, but with no strings attached. Anyone who's ever been hit full on by a runaway train while they were standing in the tracks gazing without a single care in the world in the opposite direction and lived to tell about it knows how we felt that morning in the doctor's office. I had four part-time jobs and was raising my two teenage daughters and terrified that I wouldn't be able to send them to college to avoid my fate when I met Ralph. He helped me to do that, and then he insisted I go to the University of New Hampshire and get a bachelor's degree. Well, barely having graduated from high school as a teenage mother with less than stellar grades, it was something I had never considered. He insisted. I entered my first lecture hall petrified kind of like I am now, <clears throat> surrounded by students half my age who initially mistook me for their professor. I throve at UNH and graduated magna cum laude. And I know that's how you say it, loud, because I saw it on Monk. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't mess up. Alma mater means fostering mother. I cried when I found that out. The name Ralph means counselor. After graduating, I took time out from working, a first in my life at Ralph's urging. I love to learn and share knowledge. I tried so hard to save Ralph. We navigated the cancer tsunami much like our first and last kayaking trip. Me in front pointing and grasping, Ralph in back stoically suffering at every turn. I couldn't save him. He worked until he couldn't, and somehow he held on till his grandson Jacob was born to spend time with him. 
Jacob came very early to get there. Ralph died the way he lived and loved at home with me. I called my first responder, Rochelle. No siren, honey. Poppy's gone. And now I'm learning to live and love as I decipher my own delayed cancer diagnosis. Seeing life devoid of Ralph through the eyes of a crow, I hardly know. Thank you. We have our last storyteller, Pat Spaulding. Pat? It was January 2009, the night of Obama's first inaugural celebration, and upstairs in the press room, everybody was happy. People were packed together, drinking, eating, laughing, when up those narrow stairs climbed the leftist marching band. <laughs> A cacophony of music and dancing ensued. The room was rocking. Literally, the floor was moving up and down. I was afraid to stay, but I wasn't going to leave because I was falling in love with the leftist marching band <laughs> whose mission is to promote equality and tolerance, to combat fear with hope and humor, and whose motto is, our music is better than it sounds. <laughs> I had to be a part of this band, but I didn't know how to play an instrument. So I learned how to twirl a baton. I bucked up my high school cheerleading skills, and I became a majorette with a mission. For the next three years, I twirled my baton for good causes, brought attention to social problems that needed fixing, and became part of a vibrant, youthful activism. Why, I never felt a day over 58. <laughs> Until... I was about to turn sixty-five. Oh, holy trumpet, trombone, tuba! That is old. My friends wanted to throw me a party, but I wanted none of it. I was in no mood to go public with this birthday. Didn't want to admit to it. Didn't want to think about it. Didn't want to celebrate with anybody who knew me. I was ready to just leave, go to a foreign country. Well, fate intervened, got an invitation from Canada, the Chaotic Insurrection Ensemble, also called Ensemble Insurrection Chaotique. <laughs> An activist street band from Montreal invited LMB to attend a weekend conference of alternative bands from all over Canada, New England, and New York, for une soirée de musique célébrante la résistance. Ce 14 avril, April 14th, <laughs> my birthday. This was perfect. During the, the wee hours of April 14th, my bandmates and I packed ourselves and our instruments into three cars and drove north through customs into Canada, where I unfolded myself out of the car to attend workshops, a student protest, and to mix it up with fellow activists. Late that afternoon, all bands reassembled for one large impromptu parade through the streets of Montreal for no apparent reason. <laughs> Except that it was my birthday! Over 200 horn players and drummers marched to a joyful noise with only one single majorette amongst them. C'est moi! <laughs> Pourquoi? Je ne sais pas. <laughs> I asked a young tattooed French activist why there were, weren't more twirlers, and she told me, Oh, majorette, they're an American thing. We don't have them here. Majorette? Isn't that a French word? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't matter. I felt uniquely glamorous as the only majorette in Montreal and held my shiny baton on high to lead the parade. <laughs> that evening, the real partying began. A dozen bands and all of their friends gathered in one room, barely big enough to contain us, to eat, drink, dance, and play for each other. Starting at 8 p.m., every band was scheduled to march up onto a very small stage, play for about 20 minutes, and then exit as the next band marched on. Well, LMB was scheduled to play at 11.20 p.m. These things always run late. <laughs> 11.30, amidst this crowd of dancing, cheering, tattooed, and fierce young people, I was leaning against a windowsill, trying very hard not to fall asleep, 
when we were told that we were up next. Currently on stage were three guys shouting out French lyrics into microphones. They weren't a marching band. They were just a loud yelling trio that we couldn't understand. Well, at least this won't be a hard act to follow, I thought. <laughs> but the crowd was loving it. Jumping up and down, they applauded for an on encore. I asked a French guy next to me, what are these guys singing about? He said, ah, them, they'll say anything. They'll do anything. You don't know what to expect. No sooner had he said those words than one of the guys up on stage pulled off his T-shirt, swung it around the air, and then tossed it into the audience. The crowd went wild. <laughs> so the other two followed him. Take it off. Boom. And everybody was going bananas. Happily, my sight range was uh, was blocked by the people standing in front of me, rows of people standing up. So all I could see was three kind of scruffy-looking Frenchmen, naked from the waist up, shaking whatever was down below. Full Monty? I don't know. Never did know for sure. All I did know for sure that now this was going to be a hard act to follow. The MC introduced us, and now... The leftist marching band from New York. <laughs> New York? <gasps> I ran up to correct him. He handed me the microphone. Bonjour! I'm trying to quickly access my high school French. Je m'appelle um, Pat, la majorette pour le leftist marching band uh, de New Hampshire. Uh, nous sommes ici. Uh, très bien. Bon. Then the band marches on. Well, People parted, and they march up to the stage. Um, but the Montes hadn't cleared. They'd put their clothes back on, but they had all these microphones and mic stands and wires that they had to coil. So the band couldn't approach the stage. They just turned around and started playing in front of it, floor level. Well, it worked fine for the band. And it worked fine for the audience, who was crowding up close and dancing. Didn't work so well for the majorette. Because I couldn't twirl without clocking one of my bandmates behind me or possibly clobbering one of the dancers. So I looked behind me and thought, well, I mean, the band can't fit on stage, but one agile majorette could hop around wires and, and duck around mic stand. So I just went up on stage, twirled my baton, strutting my stuff, while my band played in the orchestra pit. <laughs> Felt great. Then after about three songs, the Montes had cleared, so I walked down and told the band, okay, time to come up now. And Liz, a trombone player, she says, now, this is working. We're close to the crowd. We are staying right here. Oh, well, there was a full, clear, empty stage with only a single majorette to fill it. So at the stroke of midnight... On my first official day of senior citizenship, the band started playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I picked up the rainbow-colored ribbons that I had bought, especially for this occasion, and I climbed the steps to the empty stage, and I filled it. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, the crowd started singing with me. There's a land I have heard of once in a lullaby. They clapped and cheered even louder than they had for the full Monty's, and I didn't even have to take my clothes off. <laughs> At the end of our set, young French women clamored around to bestow kudos. Oh, you are such an inspiration. So glamorous. How do you stay animated? Oh, I want to be like you when I grow up. We love the majorette. I felt all puffed up until one little French girl said, Are you the mother of the band? <laughs> oh, man. My moment of ecstasy deflated. Really? Do I look that old to have given birth to these people? <laughs> I mean, they're no spring chickens. Well, they thought, no, 
Wait a minute. Hers is not an age-related question. Why did I go there so quickly? This is a language thing. She was asking me, are you the leader of the band? And with that, I embraced my whole authentic 65-year-old self and answered, mais oui, <laughs> je suis la mère du band. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. <laughs>